Hello. So the scripture reading for today is 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow leader, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not demurring over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Father God, we just come before you this morning. We ask God for your blessing on this word. We thank you, Lord God, for being here with us. And we thank you, Lord God, that we can gather together as your sheep, you being our shepherd, and that you would speak to us, Lord. Help us to appreciate the church for what it is and what you are calling it to. We also pray, Lord God, that you would Give us more clarity in what godly leadership looks like and what it means to be a flock, what it means to be a sheep who follows their shepherd. So I just pray, Father, that you would work, that you would bless this time, that you would bless this message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so imagine you had to get up in front of your co-workers and you had to give them a 40-minute presentation, and the contents of your talk would include highlighting the importance of your job, and then also you would have to persuade your coworkers and your peers about not only the importance of your work and your job, but give them very clear descriptions about what it would look like to do your job poorly and what it would look like to do your job well. And you had to persuade your co-workers with this. Now, most of you probably wouldn't have to make such an appeal. You wouldn't have to make such a presentation. And you're probably glad you don't have to do that. But this morning, I get to make such a presentation to all of you as we talk about biblical eldership. I'm an elder at this church. So therefore, here I am talking to you about what an elder should be, and you guys are probably sitting there thinking, well, you're the elder, I'm not the elder, right? And just to be clear, at Glory of Christ Fellowship, we have shared leadership, and the term elder is interchangeable with pastor. The New Testament also talks about shepherds, overseers, um, I forget now, there's another word, elder, I think. I think those are all of them. They're interchangeable. And our church believes that the most biblical form of structuring leadership is that we have godly elders, pastors, and that they're shared leadership, so that we have four of them, myself, Pastor Charlie, Pastor Mike, and Pastor Jordan. And all of the elders are equal in authority, even though maybe some of us might carry more influence in the overall life of the church, we're all equal in authority. So here I am, as an elder of the church, talking to you and teaching you about what my job is. So that seems a little odd, 
Maybe you don't think of it that way. I kind of thought, hmm, that's a little weird. But nonetheless, we're going to talk about biblical leadership and biblical elders this morning and how elders are called to fulfill their duty in a particular way. Now, this is perhaps one section of Scripture that we would actually maybe bypass and just neglect if we were a topical church that just chose topics that we wanted to speak on. I'm sure none of the elders would say, yeah, I want that one. I want to tell the congregation how I should do my job, right? (laughs) And uh, give them very clear descriptions about what it looks like to do it well and what it looks like to do it poorly, what to avoid. So we preach the whole counsel of God. And that means we preach expositionally, drawing out the passage and the meaning from the text of Scripture. And we don't want to miss anything. And 1 Peter 1-5 through is in the Bible, brothers and sisters. So it's my job this morning to educate you and raise the overall awareness of the church and raise your understanding level about what godly leadership actually looks like so that you can be a godly flock in response to that. And we're all in this together to some extent because you have a measure of accountability to hold us accountable. And that's one of the reasons why we preach this word to you. Because we're not trying to do anything sneaky or underhanded or anything like that. We want everybody to know what we're dealing with. So therefore, we want you to be as educated as possible. See, tyranny rests on ignorance. Tyranny depends on ignorance. If a leader is going to tyrannize a people, they they depend on the ignorance of of a people. They don't want to educate their people. They want them to be as ignorant as possible so they won't be able to sniff them out. We want you to be as educated as possible. And we realize that the call of the church is a great one. And we realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ affects everything. It affects the way leaders lead. This is part of the whole counsel of God, brothers and sisters. That the good news of the gospel, that Jesus dying on the cross, it impacts everything. It impacts the church and the meaning of the church and the significance of the church. It impacts the leaders and how they carry out their leadership responsibility. And it impacts you as a sheep, as a member of this church, as a participant of this church, and how you respond to leadership. The gospel is the good news that totally impacts everything. So this is a gospel sermon, even though you might not think of it. Don't think of it in terms of this is what an elder is and this is what a leader is and so on and so forth. This is rooted in gospel. And like I said, my hope this morning is that I would raise your awareness to the entire body to rightly assess godly leadership so that you guys have the right kind of paradigm for assessing your leaders and assessing what kind of people you will submit to. Many times, we can make assumptions about what we mean by godly leadership and what it means to be a pastor. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about in his book on ethics, man's lust for success. And oftentimes, it's easy to be more persuaded and infiltrated in in your thinking 
about worldly notions of success than it is about godliness. And we can subtly place success above what it means to be godly. My point with this is that we don't want to make any assumptions that we really value what should be valued when it comes to assessing godly leadership. Are your notions for what an elder should be, are they truly rooted in Scripture? Is that your criterion for assessing the men who are leading you? Because like Bonhoeffer says, our craving for success oftentimes is out of sync with the gospel itself. Jesus didn't appear very successful when he was dying on the cross, when he was being nailed to a tree. So therefore, the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ is oftentimes at odds with our craving for success. Now, I'm not saying success is a bad thing. I'm just saying it's important to kind of differentiate between what godliness is and what the worldly notions of success are that we oftentimes can get duped by. So I want us to raise our awareness and raise our understanding of what godly leadership is and what it should look like in the life of a church. And I also want to inform you guys and spend a little time at the end helping you to understand what your role is as a shepherd or as a sheep, in the, as a flock in this fold, so that the church will fulfill its mission in this earth. Now, before we get to the call that Peter has upon his elders, the elders that are scattered amongst the five provinces in Asia Minor, you guys will remember Peter's addressing a bunch of Christians that were scattered, most likely due to Roman colonization, There they are, just kind of scattered out through the Roman colonies. They're facing opposition. And Peter says, shepherd the flock that is among you. He's addressing the elders. Hey, you elders that are out there, kind of scattered about wherever you are, shepherd the flock. Don't shy away from this. And I'm going to get into a little bit more why he was pointing that out. But before he actually calls him to shepherd the flock, He roots this call in three different things. So if you would with me look at verse 1. The first thing is Peter roots his call to shepherd the flock in the fact that he is a fellow elder himself. He isn't just telling these elders to embrace their calling as someone who doesn't really understand the difficulties of what it means to be a shepherd, but as someone who does. You guys will remember, Peter denies Jesus three times. Do you guys remember this? And then what happens after Jesus dies and rises again? He comes to Peter and so gently deals with him. And he says three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter says three times, yes, Jesus, you know I do. And three times, Peter, or Jesus says to Peter, well then, feed my lambs. Shepherd my people. Now going back even further, You'll remember Jesus making a promise to Peter that he would be the one upon whom the church of Jesus Christ would be built upon. You are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. Catholicism has deviated and wrongly connected the church leadership to the apostolic line of Peter. 
The Reformation came along and corrected that and said it is more about preaching the gospel and getting gospel fidelity. That is the mark of a true church, not necessarily having to connect the lineage to Peter. It's the teaching that matters. So shepherds, pastors, by and large, one of their big aims is to proclaim the gospel. Gospel fidelity is what really matters. Proclamation of the gospel so that the flock would be protected against false teaching, against all of the worldly philosophies and empty deceit that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 2. So Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs. This is one of the things that Peter is called to do. This is one of the ways that a shepherd looks. But my original point was, Peter is a fellow elder. He knows what he's asking his people to do. Number two, Peter calls his people to shepherd his sheep, the sheep of Jesus, that is, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is interesting that Peter would point to the sufferings of Jesus. Why is this so interesting? Well, because this was a point of great failure for Peter. There's many experiences that Peter had with Jesus. And he could have based his credentials on something that would have cast him into a better light. Instead, he says, I'm a witness of the suffering of Jesus. What did, Peter, what did Peter do at the time that Jesus suffered? He utterly failed. He denied Jesus three times right at that moment. Right? And it's interesting that Peter would go back to the sufferings of Christ And he bases his call to shepherd the flock on this. It's a point of great humility for Peter. But I think one of the things that he notices is that he points to the humility and the grace that is needed to be a godly leader. You're going to be a leader? You need humility, you need grace. And Peter's showing this. And then there's another thing. There's an additional thing that I think a rationale as to why Peter says, I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. Because Peter understood that the call to be a pastor was a call to take up the title that Jesus occupied, and that is shepherd. Thus, the significance of that is that pastors reflect Jesus in his most significant office, and this also carries the privilege of suffering with Jesus, who is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Peter was writing to his people, And he was preparing them for suffering that would be coming their way. And he understands pastors would probably be most impacted by this because they they would be a greater target if they were effectively and actively shepherding their flock. So Peter understands that you, pastors, you share in the most significant title that Jesus has as a shepherd. But don't let that get to your head. Because what that means is you share in the call to lay your life down for your people. Last week I pointed out that judgment in chapter 4, we read this in verse 17, judgment begins in the household of God. And guess what? 
God gives pastors first dibs in the purifying fire because they share their call to uniquely reflect Jesus who laid his life down for his sheep. A third thing that Peter talks about, or a third aspect that Peter grounds his call to pastors in, is that he's a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, Peter doesn't really give his elders any earthly comfort or reward. He just calls them to shepherd on the basis that they will be partakers that is going, of the glory that is going to be revealed. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, When the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's your reward. Until then, you get no guarantees of earthly reward other than faithfully shepherding secures for you your eternal reward and the future glory that will be revealed for you. Thus, Peter calls on pastors in Asia Minor to pastor the people, to shepherd them, which includes the proclamation of the gospel. It includes protecting his people from false witness. It means discipling the flock through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It also means carrying out church discipline. If you guys want to do a little bit more reading about what the true church is and what the marks of a church are, I put it in your bulletin on the inside flap. You can look at what the reformers thought. And then there's also another ministry called Nine Marks that put out the marks of a healthy church. You guys should be informed about what a church is. You should come to realize what the true church is, what the marks of a true church are, so that you value what's important in the life of a church. Okay, now let's get to verse 2 here. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, Peter says to the elders. Shepherd them, exercising oversight. Oversee them, care for their souls, know what they're thinking. Teach them good doctrine. Teach them the gospel. Keep them in line. All of these things are exercising oversight. And he says, do this in a particular way. And he gives three contrasting statements. Not this, but this. And here's what he does. Let's go through these, these three contrasting statements. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly. The first vice that Peter warns that is common to pastors is that they fulfill their duty under compulsion. What does compulsion mean? It means they do their job out of obligation. It could mean that they're lazy, they're doing what, it, what they must do merely. It certainly means that they can never really go out with the guys and joke around and talk about their job and say, oh yeah, well, it pays the bills. Peter says, the scriptures say, you can't do that as a pastor. You can never actually just joke around with the guys and say, yeah, well, you know my job, I'm a pastor. Well, it pays the bills. It's a paycheck. That's not acceptable. And I personally hold myself to that standard. The New Testament makes it clear that a worker is worth its wage, that pastors can and should be paid by the church but it doesn't leave any room for the uninspired pastor, 
who is motivated to shepherd because he's bringing in the paycheck. On the flip side, they should do so willingly. And by the way, this is one of the real blessings of a church that would grant a pastor a sabbatical. Because this is one of the unique pressures of being a pastor is that you can't just get to the point of saying, well, it's a paycheck. I'm just going to grind it through. There may be seasons like that. But if that's the ultimate motivation of a pastor, if he's uninspired, he shouldn't be a pastor. A shepherd oversees the sheep willingly because they want to, because they love it, with eagerness. The motivation for a pastor is the enjoyment of tasting the grace of Jesus Christ. Pastors should share in the sentiment of the Apostle Paul, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I remember hearing one pastor say, I'm going to try to do my best to remember this and get the gist of it, but he said, if you can possibly do anything else, you should do it. Namely, about being a pastor, being a shepherd. If you could possibly do something else, then you should do that. That's the bar that we raise. Unless you have the spirit, unless you have the gut level agreement with the Apostle Paul, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I gotta do it. It's burning in my soul. I must preach. Then don't do it. If you're not compelled to the ministry like the Apostle Paul was, and I think what Peter is calling his pastors to, then find something else. And you guys are probably thinking, yeah, uh, that's the word to you. <laughs> okay, number two, not for shameful gain. Shepherd the flock that of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, shameful gain, this could encompass a lot of different things. Religion is easy to manipulate for making money. We see this all the time, don't we? It's a shame. This is one of the reasons why people reject organized religion, and rightfully so. It's, it's disturbing when we see this happen. This goes beyond merely getting a paycheck that pays the bills. I'm talking about exploiting religion and the vulnerability of people through the religious platform in order to make money. Some people catch on, hey, People are really vulnerable when it comes to religion. If I tell them a few things, if they give me some money, I'll make some cash. That is shameful gain. Don't do that. Be very leery about pastors who appear to use their platform to make some money. Now, money isn't the only example of shameful gain. It could be Anything that falls under the banner of serving your own personal interests. It could be pursuing ministry and using it as a soapbox because you have a bone to pick with this or that and you're just going to use your platform as a pastor to get that, to speak your mind, to offer your two cents into the world. 
Nobody needs that. We actually have a statement in our volunteer applications that calls people to agree that they will not use the platform that we're giving them in the classroom to turn it into a personal soapbox. That's not the place to do it. Teachers, you're not at liberty to deviate from the curriculum, to pick your bone with something or some aspect of the church, right? A kindergarten teacher should never use the word cessationist in their teaching or anything like that. Just don't go there. That's not the right platform for it. And pastors who do this, who are really just in it for themselves, is considered shameful gain. On the flip side, there's eagerness. They should be marked by eagerness. There is gain to be had in ministry. It's being a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed when Jesus returns. And for an elder, it's the unfading crown of glory that is promised to them. It's the joy of knowing Christ and making Christ known. It's the joy of discipling young people and adults alike and families and you name it so that they would become more like Jesus, so that they would come to embrace the truth and be set free. That is the gain of ministry. And anything else is unacceptable, really. Number three, and this is probably the most important one, probably the most common one, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not domineering. Don't be a domineering pastor. Don't be a domineering church leader, minister of the gospel. Rather, the right way to do it is to be an example of the flock, to the flock. What does it mean to be domineering? It means you lust for power. Now, similar to the personal interest, the lust for power perhaps is the greatest vice for a shepherd. Pastors should never become pastors because they want affirmation, because they want praise or influence or power. They shouldn't look at people like John Piper or Tim Keller and Matt Chandler and say, oh yeah, I want to have a big name like that. I want people to download my podcast. I want people to buy my books. I want people to quote me and say nice things about me on the internet. If that's the motivation, it's not right. See, sometimes in ministry there's discouragement and some of it is actually legitimate. But sometimes discouragement in ministry comes from the desire to be domineering. See, I got into this and to make a big name for myself and people just aren't listening to me and what I have to say, so now I'm discouraged. And it really calls into question, what are you in this for? If you feel a call to ministry and say, I just want to get in there, I just want to, I want to really call you to think about not being tripped up with the lust for power for your personal affirmation, so that you can say something and people will listen to you. That would be really great. You see, a lot of times I think ministers of the gospel get discouraged because they want that power. And they're not getting it, so now they're upset. 
We have to be careful about these things. There's so many different ways to be a domineering leader. There's so many different ways that the lust for power manifests itself. I'll give you one more. It means that you don't use the word of God to manipulate people. And this is, again, why we want to educate you, because we want to invite your feedback so that if you are sensing, hey, you're kind of misusing this, you're kind of just bending this just a little bit, you're just a little too forceful so that people will do what you want them to do, to promote your personal agenda. It is possible to misuse and abuse God's word to get people to do what you want. And brothers and sisters, as the beloved flock of God, we don't want you to be manipulated by God's word. We want you to be blessed by God's word, built up by God's word, set free by God's word. Here's a quote from Edmund Clowney who has his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, The elder presents the word of the Lord, not his own decree. This is This is a great quote. He enforces the revealed will of the Lord, not his own wishes. For that reason, any undermining of the authority of Scripture turns church government into spiritual tyranny. And I would stand up here before you as one of your elders. I do not want to be guilty of spiritually tyrannizing the people. I would never want to misuse and abuse God's word to that end. If church governors add to, add to or subtract from the word of God, they make themselves lord over the consciousness, consciousness of others. And again, This is why it's so important, so crucial in the life of the church to get the gospel down right. Because it's really easy to add all kinds of rules. You know who did this as it's coming to my mind? The Pharisees. The Pharisees tried to tyrannize people with adding a bunch of rules. This is what Jesus said. You lay heavy burdens upon people that you aren't willing to pick up yourself. You are spiritual tyranny. That's what you are. Legalism is spiritual tyranny. And this is why it's utterly crucial, brothers and sisters, that as a church, we get the gospel right. And we get the teaching of the word of God right. Now it's our job as elders to feed you all of our jobs to protect the gospel. We are a priesthood of believers. We are members of one another. On the flip side to this, be an example. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche was a German liberal philosopher, and he believed that religion was ultimately the creation of man born out of his own insecurities and flaws. Nietzsche was the one who popularized this idea that God is dead. And you guys go and see the movie God is Not Dead. It's largely in response to an idea that Nietzsche planted 100 years ago that is really popular today. God is dead. Religion is the creation of man. And he would hear the call 
this call that preachers are supposed to preach this quote-unquote absolute truth, he would, he would receive this with skepticism and that people are supposed to submit to their leadership. He would, he would receive this with skepticism. He would look at this with skepticism and he would say, this is ultimately self-serving and a form of manipulation. That's, not, that's what the church is. God is dead. Religion is just this creation of man probably trying to, quote, proclaim this absolute truth so that people will submit to them and do what they say. I think that was Nietzsche's kind of point. Now, he does have a valid concern. He's not formulating his teaching out of thin air. And the valid concern comes in because there are leaders who abuse their authority. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't be addressing this. Even Peter kind of affirms, yes, unfortunately, there are leaders who abuse their authority. That's why he says, don't domineer. Don't dominate your flock. Be examples. And do you know why this solves the problem? Why does this solve the problem in, 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 in terms of Nietzsche's response? How, how does this respond to Nietzsche's concern? Well, here's how it does. Here's what Nietzsche's missing along with all the others who have bought into this popular teaching. He's forgetting that Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, brothers and sisters, a pastor in the church of Christ is to model the life of Jesus who served his people and laid his life down, laid their life down for the people just like Jesus did. If Jesus was lusting for power, and if pastors who are building their church on the premise that they're just trying to manipulate their people, why would Peter call them to be examples of Jesus? Why would Jesus die on the cross if he was lusting for power. This doesn't make sense. Somebody who lusts for power, somebody who's trying to manipulate people into following them doesn't serve them. They don't go to the outcasts. They don't go to the poor. They don't heal the sick. They don't deal with the demoniacs. So Nietzsche's argument really falls apart when we hold it up to Christianity. Why? Because somebody who lusts for power doesn't go to the cross to prove their motives. They don't lay their lives down to serve people and die for them. They come to be served by people. And this is the call on pastors to be an example of this Jesus who actually came not to serve or not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Godly leadership takes the form and has the aroma of Christ who came to serve. And nobody can say, oh, that's a tyranny. That's, that, that's just a lust for power. They're just lusting for... No. Who lusts for power who dies for the people that they're coming to save and serve? It makes no sense. It's utterly irrational. Here's another quote from Edmund Clowney. The care of pastors for their flock 
will be proportional to their care for the Lord. By the lake of Galilee, Jesus had examined Peter about his own love for him. Only as he confessed his love for Christ was Peter charged to shepherd the flock of Christ. Love for Christ will kindle compassion for Christ's scattered sheep, the little ones for whom he died. The preacher must present Christ. More than that, to know his people, he must know Christ. He must serve the flock in the light of the cross. Their value to the Lord is the price of his blood. Love for the Lord will motivate elders to to imitate the care of the good shepherd. God directed his people as a flock, leading them through the wilderness. So too, Jesus leads his sheep going before them. The elder shepherd is not a cowboy driving his flock like cattle. He leads them as a shepherd would, walking on ahead. Isn't that great? So the pastor, the minister of the gospel, is one who proclaims the truth not just with his lips, but proclaims the truth in his life that's transformed by this Jesus. And now his love for Christ is what truly outfits him to accurately lead the people. They're examples of Christ. Let me just end with this word on the importance of the church. Now there's a verse that's directed towards the sheep. In verse 5, likewise, a very short verse that says a lot. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now the underlying subtlety of Peter's call to the elders to shepherd the flock is the importance of the church. Peter views the church as utterly important for fulfilling the mission of Christ, for seeing people discipled and sanctified and built up in the Lord. Jesus died to purchase a church. The church is God's plan to sustain his people, to disciple his people, to evangelize the nations until Jesus returns. It's the church. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Now the point of this short little verse is that you need to be subject to the elders around whom the church is structured. One of the things that grieves me is that too many people take the church for granted. And too many people are far too loosely connected to the church. As if it's it's a nice optional add-on And this is, I think, especially true. I think every culture has their obstacle to climb when it comes to the value and the importance of the church. I think for Peter in his day, it was hard to pull off the church because there was so much opposition, perhaps. 
Maybe people were bickering. I'm not sure exactly. But in our day, it might be just our democratic nature of our culture, which is very consumeristic. We kind of have a mentality of, I'll take the best and I'll just leave the rest. If I don't really like this, or if this doesn't flip my switch, or if this doesn't float my boat, well, I'll just ignore that and I'll just take what I want. Peter calls the flock to be subject to the elders, not wandering sheep who aren't really accounted for. This puts into perspective the real importance of church membership. Church membership largely is a way for pastors to know who the flock are and to keep some kind of watchful eye on them. Now let me say this about the person who really isn't connected to a church. It's kind of floating around out there. This is you. And I'm not picking on anybody here. But as a loving shepherd, I want to bring into perspective how utterly dangerous it is to be this type of person who is just kind of floating around, not really connected to anything. Nobody really knows what they're up to. They might have their Christian culture. They might have some friends or whatever. They have their iPod and they listen to good sermons on the internet. That's not enough. Peter calls, be subject to the elders in a church. It's possible that if you're really not subject to any kind of authority structure, namely the church, that you're really not submitted to and subject to Jesus himself. I'm not saying that with any kind of absolute certainty, but it's possible. And we know that because it's like, what do we say to a kid? What do we say about a young child who is utterly rebellious to to his parents? We say, well, he's probably rebellious to the Lord as well. Because this is the structure that God has put in place to care for your soul. And you know that you are connected to Jesus if you're connected to the structure that he put in place. You see, if you have a freewheeling, free spirit, self-governing, I'll do what I want, I'll go where I want, when I want to go, I'll plug in where I want, I'll take the best and forget the rest, nobody really knows who I am, I'll just show up when I want to and I'll leave when I will, If that's you, you probably have maybe that attitude towards Jesus himself. What happens when God, what happens when God doesn't do life the way you want it? What happens when you don't agree with the leadership of Jesus? What happens? Are you free to go there too? Brothers and sisters, again, I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just saying, being subject to the elders of the church, they may be, in your estimation, incompetent chumps, but you're called to submit to them. You're not called to submit to them if they are ungodly. That's why scripture gives us criterion. 
But if you don't want to or whatever, you might have that same attitude towards Jesus himself. Who is there to account for your soul? Where is there discipline in your life? You might say, oh, I have my homeschool co-op or whatever. I've got a bunch of godly people that just are inputting into my life. Okay, where do you take communion? Who does the baptizing? If somebody were to sin and get out of line, is there anybody there? Is there any kind of authority structure to get involved and hold people accountable? Or is everybody just easy come, easy go? Nobody's really keeping tabs on each other. You see, Jesus did not die to set up a homeschool co-op or a Bible study. You might have your Bible study, and that's really good. But that's not the church. You might say, oh, I don't need all the, the, the stuff that comes with the church, all the, all the this and that or the whatever, the people. I would say, yeah, you do. For better or worse, this is God's plan to sanctify you. And being submitted, sanctification doesn't usually happen when there's no submission to authority. This is one of the dynamics that happen. You have people who are, in some ways, very mature, and in other ways, they're utterly very immature. Why? Because every time their weaknesses or their sin patterns get confronted, they kind of just wiggle out and go somewhere else. Submission to authority is God's way of growing his people. And it doesn't mean that you just have to put up with everything because I will say, I'll be the first one to say, I'm, I'm very incompetent in some ways. I am not a perfect leader. You're like, yeah, duh, we knew that. <laughs> Goes without saying, Pastor Mike, believe it or not, he's not a perfect man. I know, that comes as a surprise to you. Pastor Jordan, Pastor Charlie, we are not perfect men. Are we, are we approachable? Yes. Can you voice your opinion and say, hey, did you think about doing it this way? Did you think about doing that way? Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe you're a little too much like this. Maybe you're a little too harsh with that or whatever. That's all acceptable. You see, submission to authority is not only good for your sanctification, it's good for ours. Life without authority is dangerous. Having the self-governing, freewheeling, just going around, you're walking on very thin ice. And Peter says, younger people be subject to the elders. Why does he say younger people? Does that mean all the older people are off the hook? I think he's dealing with, <laughs> Buster's like, yes, yeah. That's exactly what it means. I think he's dealing with an attitude, not an age. I think what he's addressing is younger people are the ones who are more apt to try new things, to embrace new things, to embrace change. Let's do this. They tend to think that they have it all figured out if we just did this and that and that and that. And you see, elders are just like, oh, we've been around the block, we've been there, done that, we know the things, we're not quite as quick to move. And here's what winds up happening, I think what Peter's addressing, is the attitude of, this guy isn't going anywhere, 
I'm going to go around him. I'm going to show him how it's done. I'm going to leave, whatever it might be. And Peter's saying, don't have that attitude. Don't have that attitude. A lot of people leave churches. They go somewhere else. They start their own church. They start their own Bible study thinking, we're going to show the world how it's done. If I could only be in charge, this whole world would be evangelized already. No. (laughs) It really wouldn't be. And what he's saying is, submit to your leaders. As long as it's their godly men who are pursuing Christ, they fulfill the criterion of biblical leadership. They're not perfect. Scripture does not call for perfect men. If that were the case, there would be no elders. Respect their leadership. Get on board with what they're trying to do and stop being a hindrance and maybe you could have more impact getting on board than you would trying to do your own thing. You see, the very attitude of this guy can't do anything, I'm going to go and do it myself, that's a rebellious attitude. A lot of house churches start with that attitude. I'm tired of the organized church. They don't know what they're doing. If we could just do things our way, we'd really have the right thing going. No. So there's a call to elders. There's a call to you. And there's so much more to be said about this. I feel like I just opened up a huge can of worms and we can only deal with just a little bit of it. We're out of time. Next week, I'm going to resume this train of thought on Peter's call to humility. Because what's interesting is right there, right there in chapter 5, verse 5, there's this another pressing of Peter on the people to be humble. Be humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. Don't have the attitude, oh, I can do this better, or this guy's a chump. Don't have that attitude. Be humble. But for now, let me challenge you with the idea that the church of Jesus Christ and the way that he structured it should be of utmost importance to us. Brothers and sisters, what would this country be? What would this community be if you just took away all the churches? Don't take it for granted. Don't take the church of Jesus Christ for granted. You have no idea how you and others and parachurch organizations and homeschooling co-ops, how they are undergirded by the church and how that all would all fall apart if the church diminished and died. It would all come crumbling down. You know how I know that? Jesus said, I'm building the church. So therefore, all of these other organizations, while they're needed, the church is the rock-solid foundation of them all. Now, we all have a part to play. We should never take it for granted as often as it does. This is true for both shepherds and sheep. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and we ask God for your blessing on this word. Lord, I just pray that we would receive it in a spirit of humility and whatever 
really wasn't of me. That didn't really need to be said. I pray that that would fall away. I'm open to your rebuke if that's needed. I pray, Lord, that this was done and delivered in the right spirit. So I pray that it would be well-received and that we would appreciate collectively just how valuable and important the church of Jesus Christ truly is. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.